welcome to the Forum at St. Luke's. This morning, um, we are continuing our celebration of Pride Weekend here in Atlanta. And so this morning, we get to have a wonderful conversation between Winnie and our own Kim Jackson, um, who works for Common Ground. Um, so please enjoy. I know it's going to be a wonderful conversation. They're going to talk politics. They're going to talk family. They're going to talk journeys. Enjoy. Good to know. That's what we're doing. All yeah, right. right. I'm excited. It. Thank you. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, there's some coffee in the back and tea if you want to grab something. Um, we have the pleasure of having, I'm still learning how, the, how government works here in, in Georgia. It's a little bit different where I was a few months ago. Um, and here in Georgia, we've had to figure out how to, uh, how to because of a couple of our um, electeds, how to get all the titles right. So do you do like the Reverend Senator? How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, that's right. I'm the Reverend Senator. The Reverend Senator Kim Jackson. Um, who, the, and so the ours part of that, we're happy to claim everybody is ours at St. Luke's I'm Learning, is that the Church of the Common Ground has, an, has offices um, very close to ours, um, down the hall from, um, from the church offices. And so we get to be with the Common Ground team every day, which is a, a real delight for us um, and a lot of growth and learning for us as well. And Kim leads that important ministry. But also, um, and also, I don't know which part is the also, it represents us um, in, in state government. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about Kim's journey, if she's willing. And apparently there were some lambs and uh, there was some state faring involved yesterday. That's, that's um, true. What it means to be a senator and how we, how we think about our lives in public and in politics as Christian people. Okay. Just everything, all the things, right? I'm, I'm ready. Right. So, Kim, tell us. So, I, I've heard a little bit about um, your family and your own personal spiritual journey. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. It's always good to be uh, here, home, I guess, uh, since you all yes. claim me and I claim you. Uh, so Ooh. I grew up in a really small town in Calpins, South Carolina. Uh, if you know where the big peach is when you're driving up 85, uh, that's Gaffney, but underneath the peach is Calpins. <laughs> We're about that big. Uh, literally a one-stoplight town. And um, I grew up in a, in a really religious household, and um, I like to tell people every time the doors of the church were open, we were there. It was a Baptist church, a kind of black Baptist church, um, where my dad and my grandfather were deacons, um, and so just a deeply faithful household. Um, I actually experienced a call to ministry when I was just eight years old, mm. and I went and I told, um, I told my parents, and they said, oh, that's great, go talk to the pastor, and he told me that girls can't do it. Cool. Uh, girls can't be pastors. So I was eight. I believed him because you believe your pastor when you're eight, yeah. which makes me um, very aware of the gravitas that I have as a pastor now, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, I went to college. I went to Furman University, which actually has Baptist roots, but is not a Baptist college. And the chaplain there saw gifts for ministry in me. And at 18 years old, I was bold and said to him, that's not possible because girls cannot be pastors. Wow. And he put me in his car and drove me around Greenville, South Carolina, and introduced me to women who were serving as clergy. Wow. And it really did change my life. In that process, he also introduced me to a pastor of a local downtown church 
It was the AME church that was doing community organizing. So this black preacher who um, had grown up with Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson's from Greenville, South Carolina. Um, and they were organizing. They were organizing around the Martin Luther King holiday. At that time, Greenville County refused to acknowledge it. And uh, was one of the last counties left in the nation, in fact. And my college chaplain said, I want you to shadow this person. I want you to shadow him and see what he's doing. And um, I, think my, I think my chaplain could see things inside of me that I couldn't see. And um, what happened was I got to see what it looked like to wed local government, community engagement, because we were going to county council meetings where, I mean, so this is the early 2000s. We were going to county council meetings in Greenville where all the way, like the last mile to get there, there were Confederate flags that lined the way with all these people protesting. And he put me in his car and he drove me through all of that. And we stood up and we testified in public meetings. He brought church members and congregants and people from all over Greenville. I saw true community organizing happening from a faith-based perspective. Um, and for me, that's what it looks like to be a pastor. Like in that moment, it kind of solidified for me that, okay, I've seen that women can do this. And now I've seen a way of being a pastor that makes sense to me. It's one in which there's civic engagement involved, one in which you're making real positive change. Yeah. And so I've really tried to shape my life um, and my ministry after Caesar Richburg um, and creating that type, of, that type of ministry where I'm always both in the streets um, and behind the pulpit. Caesar Richburg, was that the organizer? That's the organizer, yeah. And what was your chaplain's name? His name is Jim Pitts. Jim Pitts. Yep, he actually just went to glory um, just a couple of months ago. Thank God for Jim Pitts. Yeah, I give thanks for him. So can I ask you really personally? Sure. Um, tell us your coming out story as well. Yeah. Put, all, put it all together. Sure. Um, so I mean, obviously college, I think, is a transformative time for so many people. And uh, my sophomore year of college, I fell in love with my best friend and my roommate. And um, I didn't have, I didn't know any gay people growing up uh, in high school or in my small, I mean, it's Calpins. I mean, now actually I can tell you, there were definitely gay people there. <laughs> but I didn't know them. Uh, the very first out gay person I met was a college professor. Um, and he was, he was not a practicing Christian at the time. And uh, so when I went to talk to him, because he wasn't a practicing Christian, and I was really clear about my call, I didn't, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I decided that I must just be in love with Tia not actually be a lesbian, right? Like, I was like, oh, I'm just Tia specifically in love. And, you know, she's not gay. She's not in love back, so we're good. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I came to grad school. And while I was in grad school, I fell in love with um, someone who is now my wife, actually. And um, I couldn't deny that that was real. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went home, and I told my, my mom first. And I, I tried to, like, I knew they weren't going to be happy with this because, of the background in which I grew up with. I mean, if you're in a church that doesn't ordain women, mm. uh, chances of them being cool with gay people is really, really low. <laughs> and so I tried to be, like, funny about it, and I said, Mom, like, I, you know, I'm in love, and she's like, well, tell me about him. And I was like, well, the good news is their last name is Jackson. <laughs> and she's like, okay. But I think she caught the pronoun of there. And she was like, wait now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, well, her name is Trina, and she's this amazing person um, who also happens to have our same last name, and so we know she's good people. And my mom just flipped out. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, she really, she, um, 
she just couldn't deal with it. She couldn't make sense of it. Um, again, I mean, she was also living, she was living in a space where she knew no out gay people. Um, she'd only heard all of the sermons preached from their pulpit about um, the destination of, of gay souls. Mm. And um, so she was very, very um, adamantly clear that um, I could not be gay and if, that if I chose that lifestyle, um, that essentially they, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. Uh, and, and I remember there was a point at which I called home and my mom said, listen, I don't want you to call unless you're telling me you're dying. And it was a real kind of harsh uh, cutoff. And uh, I remember this was in the time when, and maybe St. Luke's made one of these videos. Remember those like It Gets Better videos oh, yeah. that came out? Yeah. So it was around this time and I would watch those videos and be like, that's not true. Um, that wasn't that long ago. Right, it wasn't that long ago. Right. I mean, so I, I came out to my parents and... 2007, 2008, yeah. um, and, and so just really struggled, I think struggled with that relationship. Um, over time, things, time has a way of healing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, it's funny, I think that my parents had a lot of shame around my gayness, and um, they didn't tell their best friends, so my entire growing up life, and, and even to this day, they have this couple that they go on vacation with every year. We went together as kids, as family. Like, they didn't tell their best friends that I was gay until I ran for office, and there were all these articles that were being written about black lesbian priests, <laughs> you know, lesbian priests. Um, you know, some order was always in the title, and, and, and that came out for my parents. Like, essentially, the media came out for my parents, and my parents saw that their friends didn't freak out. In fact, their friends were, like, forwarding these um, Facebook posts and saying, I know her, that's Tim and Brenda's daughter, and they were excited, and my aunts and uncles were really excited and proud, and I think that just took took the guard down for my parents, and and they really started kind of reaching back and and have done a lot of work to repair that relationship, but it was 10 long, mm. dark, hard years. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Um, so tell, th- I, I found this to be true in a lot of people's lives. I'm, and you're, in a, you're a person like this. When, you're in, when you have the world telling you, have your church person telling you you can't, women don't get ordained, and you take him seriously because you yeah. respect him. You have your parents saying, we don't have gay people, and you're trying to figure out how to be in that relationship. How does a person told those things by the world Say, hey, I'm going to be a priest, and I'll be a state senator. Like, t- tell me, like, tell me about that. What, like, what you've known to be true, and and your own journey, and yeah, I think that um, I knew at eight, without a shadow of a doubt, that I was called to ministry. Hmm. And even though I was told I couldn't do it, there was something that lived inside of me that knew that that was true. That that is who God had created me to be. Hmm. And so, I think my heart drew me and pulled me into spaces and places where that would be affirmed. And I I also was very, very clear about my my same-sex attraction. Um, But specifically, I mean, I think that, you know, if I had just been, if I had just had same-sex attraction but hadn't, like, fallen in love with anybody, I might have rolled with my mom and dad for a long time on this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I might have just played. Because they said to me, they're like, you can stick around if you're celibate. Like, they were okay, okay with that. But I fell in love with somebody. And for me, that was just undeniable. Like when you have that moment where you are just clear that you want to spend every waking moment 
and sleeping moment with somebody, like that's just, it was undeniable. Mm-hmm. And, and I think for me, because of my relationship with God and who I understood God to be at that time, I was like, this is who God called me to be. I was just very, very clear about that. And um, I also knew, I mean, the role that other people have had in my life has been um, really incredible. So, you know, we, we talked about my college chaplain. Um, when I became an adult and was kind of working out in the world, people continued to name for me that I had gifts for leadership um, and ministry and beyond ministry. And, you know, I'd already come to Atlanta with this clear conviction that I wanted to engage in both the streets and in the pulpit. And people just continue to affirm that in me. I think that helped. Um, I'd had a similar experience around calling to elected office when I was 13. Um, So what does that mean? Yeah. So like I'm the poster child for like taking kids to see public service. So I was like in one of those gifted classes where they took you around and they like introduced me to EMTs and firefighters, which I served as an EMT for a little while. Um, You know, they went to, we went to the jail and then that night we ended at the city council and it was Spartanburg, South Carolina. So a little bit bigger (laughs) and they had their very first black mayor and he was sitting up there presiding over the city council and they were making decisions that mattered. And at 13, I had that light bulb moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. I am like the poster child for this, where I said, this is what I want to do. I don't know the where, I don't know the when, but the what of my life is that I want to make positive change in the world. And I was seeing that elected office was one of the ways to do that. And so I think so much of my life has really been driven by those clear moments of call from eight to 13 to being in love with someone and just saying, I don't care really what the world says. Um, I know who I am. I know who God has called me to be, and, and I'm going to follow that. It's amazing. Um, so did it, do you think it's coming out of the black church or something else that, did, that caused you to not worry that being called to ministry in elected office might be in conflict or it's confusing in some way? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So I also studied in college. I studied African-American history, and that was my my major, um, and so I was very much aware of the role that pastors served in the civil rights movement, but I also knew, you know, the Honorable John Lewis, mm-hmm. the late Honorable John Lewis, I knew he was the Honorable Reverend mm-hmm. John Lewis, mm-hmm. I'd never forgotten that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew that Jesse Jackson was the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and I mean, I could tell you that for a whole long list of black men, largely, yeah. who were doing both politics and, and pastoring, or at least had been ordained at some point. And so that was very much just kind of a part of the ethos. My hometown pastor had served on the school board um, because it's Calpins. If you have, if you're educated, yeah. you're going to have to do something in public life because right. there's, you know, just a few people to choose from, right? <laughs> so um, I feel, I hope nobody from Calpins ever watches this. <laughs> It's being streamed at, yeah, at <laughs> um, churches in Calvins, yeah. But, you know, but so he had been on the school board. I mean, there were just lots and lots of examples for me of black pastors who were both civically engaged, politically engaged, um, whether they were elected or um, were, you know, simply just the president of the Democratic Party, <laughs> you know, right? Like, wow. all of that was kind of mixed you together. Do that? I didn't know you could do that. I don't know that you should do yeah, that, but, do that. Yeah. but it was done. But it's done. And yes. it was an example that I certainly had. That's fantastic. And... And then the other, so there's many wonderful, almost paradoxes, right? The other is being on the street with people who are unhoused as your day-to-day, yeah. and then sitting in the halls of power. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So a number of the people that 
worship with us at Common Grounds literally live on the street across the street from the Capitol. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's, so it's, it's incredibly powerful, that juxtaposition, right? So they sleep in the shadow of this place. And um, I don't, I hadn't thought through all the way what it would mean to them for me to run and then win elected office um, until it became very clear, Jen, who many of you all have, have had a chance to meet on your Wednesday nights, when I was running, Jen would go around and she would say, y'all, this my pastor and she's running for Senate. And she would just say that everywhere. Like, and I'm just like, Jen, I'm not running for Senate down here. Like I live <laughs> out in Stone Mountain. But she was just so proud of it. Yeah. And, and I remember going, um, the day before I was sworn in, I went to, to visit a, a gentleman who lived um, just across the street from the Capitol. And he'd been having some trouble with his legs. And so I went to check on him. His name is Snake. And he was like, so you're going to be my senator tomorrow, right? Like, tomorrow. It's happening tomorrow. You're going to be my senator, right? Um, and he was just really clear that mm -hmm. I am his senator and that they have representation. Um, and I, I like to tell people, for me, doing the work at Common Ground keeps me connected and grounded to the real issues that our city and our state need to be wrestling with. And when I go in the halls of power, and if we're not having those conversations, then I can bring those to the fore because it's just so essential and it's impossible to forget, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I get to do this beautiful, holy work of being on the ground, um, doing works of charity and love and compassion. And then I kind of get to go upstream to the halls of power and begin to demand that we do something better so that maybe one day my job will be obsolete. Right, like that's the ultimate goal here, is that common ground will be obsolete because we've addressed it in that hall of power. Yeah. Right. I'm. Just, I could go for the whole hour. Does anybody else want to? Can I? Should I offer the opportunity for people to ask questions? Because this is really fun. So, so think of your questions. You got to come to this mic to ask them so that we can get it on video. And is someone coming up? If not, I'll. Yeah. Having that perspective of the reality of people who are homeless and living um, in poverty, what's your biggest frustration or challenge as you go into the halls of power that need to be changed? Yeah. I think my biggest frustration is the lack of compassion and care that people who have the same title as me mm -hmm. have. Um, you know, I've had some real hard conversations with colleagues around, um, particularly me access to medicine. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, was, I was telling a colleague, I have a gentleman who um, we give him new pants every, every once in a while. And in order to put pants on him, we have to we get these brand new pants, and then we have to slit a hole in them that's about this long mm -hmm. because he has a, like a goiter on, on, his, on his leg. Mm -hmm. And so we have to essentially ruin the pants in order for them to fit him. And I'm telling a colleague about this, and I'm like, this is the thing. Like, medical care is not easily accessible in this state because we refuse to expand Medicaid, because we don't care. And, and he said to me, well, if that was my child, I would make sure that was taken care of. And I responded, well, he's somebody's child. Yeah. Don't you think? that he too deserves to have the type of health care that you're willing to go into massive amounts of debt for for your own child. Mm -hmm. And he, he couldn't get there. And so the, the lack of empathy, the lack of compassion, uh, for a long time, and uh, my, my treasurer is here, um, David Ross, and, and, and he can testify this. For a long time, I would say, all of us generally want the same thing. 
we all want, you know, people to be able to work a job where they can feed their families, have health care, and get a good education. And what I have found is that, is that that's not true. Mm. I think we all want that for the people that we know, mm. right? Like my colleagues, they want that for their children. Mm. They want that for their nephews and nieces. But they don't care about the people who are literally sleeping outside of the Capitol. Hmm. And I've just really, str I've, I've really struggled with that in figuring out how do we bridge that disconnect? How do you teach people how to have empathy? Hmm. It often we would talk about, well, you just need to be proximate, right? Like if you got yeah. to know if you were, pro I mean, that's, that's a Brian Stevenson, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. if you get proximate, well, they literally step over these people. Yeah. They are proximate yeah. and still believe that somehow there are some of us who are deserving of health care and others of us who are undeserving of health care. Yeah. There are some of us who are deserving of our children having a great education and others of us who are not deserving of our children having access to good education. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi, my name is Tanya Washington. Um, you and I have emailed a few times about COVID um, my father passed away yes. from COVID and I held an event here at St. Luke's in August. And talking about empathy and compassion has certainly been something that I've struggled um, with people, elected officers, um, officials, excuse me, um, seeing things so differently. And also a lot of people using the, the Christian, mm -hmm. you know, place mm -hmm. and, um, and their God believes this way and I just I've really struggled with both of those so um, and also I'm working with a group to push new policies um, for COVID survivors and victims and so I'd love to hear um, your take on a few of those things. Yeah thank you so much Tanya and, and my condolences I, I know we talked about that via email but um, yes, yes and I'm gonna I'm going to be emailing you more soon because we have a lot of call for actions that we're working on. So, All right. I'm sorry. excited. Okay. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, yeah. So uh, around COVID, um, you know, as the numbers in Georgia continuing to increase the amount of people who've died, uh, I've struggled with us having a governor who talks about how great of a job he's done. Mm -hmm. uh, when I know that there are people like Tanya uh, who've lost loved ones. Um, I'll, I'll say for my own loss, there were 15 members of my home congregation where I grew up oh in Calpin, South Carolina, that died oh to COVID. So when I hear my mm. fellow legislators talk about we're doing the best we can and we've done all the right things, and I think about those numbers, um, and not just the numbers, but the people, right, the stories, the faces, I just really struggle with that. And so I think my job has been, and, and so many of my other colleagues, and I don't want to paint a broad brush to say there's no one else down at the Capitol who has empathy. That's just not true. There are many of us who understand. And so I think those of us who do have that empathy, our job has been um, to make sure that we stand up in the well and that we talk about people and not numbers, mm -hmm. that we talk about the stories of families um, and not just kind of whitewash it as, oh, we're doing a great job because we're not. Um, and then our second job is, of course, to introduce policy to try to stand up and to help um, make sure that people have protections. Uh, one of the pieces of legislation that I was most proud to support was one in which we said that, um, you know, employers have to provide circumstances for people to work in where they can be safe. Mm -hmm. So whether they're on a line in a chicken plant and you put up mask and, you know, 
barriers, whatever it is, you've got to provide protections or you don't get to be protected under that. You know, y'all all, you have it on your door too. That great little paragraph that says that you cannot be held liable for a COVID death. You know, we really pushed hard to try to get that legislation to pass saying you can't have that protection from liability if you aren't doing something to prevent the spread of it. Yeah. Um, I think that we are living in a time where there are some people who are having some awakenings. I have some colleagues who are serving in South Georgia. Um, a dear, actually a good friend of mine, he serves in a county in which only 20% of his people are vaccinated. And he has taken a very clear stand and he's taken a lot of heat around it um, to advocate for vaccines. He's posting all of the, the statistics about it. He got his vaccine publicly, which in his part of the world to do that was a huge risk. Mm -hmm. um, but he continues to push and push. And I'm watching him also recruit his other colleagues who are living in the kind of deep South Georgia to push to say, we are gonna talk honestly and openly about vaccines and we're gonna encourage people to, get, uh, to do it, even if it means we receive heat politically. Um, so I do think that th there is some shift that's happening um, in large part because people's hospitals are just overflowing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and in large part because people have lost people they love. So um, I actually do have some amount of optimism and hope because I think about Senator Goodman and all of, which is a great last mm -hmm. name, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about Senator mm -hmm. Goodman and all of the heat that he's taking down in his district to try to make sure that his vaccination get rates get up, um, I, I do think there's, there's some hope there. Yeah, you, you said something about speaking in the well. Do you, do you find, I mean, so from, for those of us removed watching politics, it yeah. seems so entrenched. Do you find the compassionate, just, fair kind of language that I think many of us as Christians would say is our common language, do you find that has impact? I mean, is, it, is the well for the record only, or do you find that hearts and minds are changed or influenced? That's a great question. <laughs> Since I try to speak from the well with honesty and justice and compassion, I'd like to believe that it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, uh, you know, when you look at kind of how people vote up on the, on the voting board, I'm not sure that it translates, um, but I do know that in conversation. So for, for instance, I did, a, um, I did a speech from the well about Medicaid expansion, and I used a parable from our scriptures. Mm. So I talked about how, um, you know, there's that, the pool of Bethsaida, mm. where there are you know, hundreds of people sitting around the pool, and they're waiting for the angel to trouble the water, and there's a promise that the first person who gets in the water will be healed. Y'all know this story from the Gospels. So I, I, I told that story from the well, and I was like, you know, well, we as a legislator, we get to be the angels who trouble the waters. Mm because we can expand Medicaid. Mm. And there are 500,000 people mm. who are sitting around the pool waiting for the waters to be troubled so they can get access to healthcare. Mm. So I, I mean, I, so I gave that whole, whole nice. speech. Very nice. <laughs> thank you, thank yeah. you, yes. Cool. And um, obviously we still haven't expanded Medicaid. <laughs> but when I went back to my seat, many of those same people who would have voted no if we had gone to vote about it mm. said, Oh, that's right. You are a pastor. You're hmm. a preacher. Hmm. I'd like to come to your church someday. Hmm. So they're hearing it, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's important. I think that's a first start. Um, I, I don't know when it translates into them actually voting differently, but I do know that they are they're hearing it. They're listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. Morning, Kim. Good morning. 
Happy Gay Pride. Yes, happy Pride. Yes, thank you. And thank you for coming on this Pride Sunday. And congratulations again for your historic win. Thank you. Um, my question is somewhat related. Uh, we hear a lot of uh, rancor around religion and politics, mm -hmm. and uh, even here of bringing politics into the church. Mm -hmm. And you probably have had to address that. You're an Episcopal priest. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that issue of religion and politics? Can you talk about how you address that? Yeah. So a, a couple of things. Um, the example I've been using most often is that uh, we have a new senator who serves in the, in, in the state senate with me who's a physician, Dr. Michelle Al. She's an incredible woman, incredible physician and senator. And whenever we have bills that come up that have anything to do with medicine, she sits right behind me. I turn around and I talk to her because I want her expertise, right? As a physician, as somebody who works in the medical field, I want to know what she thinks because she is a trained medical professional. Well, when we have bills that are introduced, say a bill that prevents trans children from being able to play sports, and it's rooted and grounded in some weird, nebulous, non-grounded theology, you want somebody who's a trained theologian to be able to bring their expertise to the fore and talk about how there's no theology, absolutely none, that's really grounding the arguments that they are making that they are saying are theologically grounded, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in the same way that we invite our physicians to bring their medical background to the table, we need to have th trained theologians who can bring their expertise in the same way that we have bankers and accountants bring their expertise, right? So I think that's, that's one of the pieces. Um, and then the, the second piece for me is that particularly in this country, so many of the policies that we pass or that we introduce have been influenced and inspired by people's philosophical and religious leanings. Um, sometimes they can articulate them. Uh, sometimes they will be as bold as to say, well, God wants us to do this. Hmm. And as long as that's happening, and I think that's going to continue to happen, uh, you need to have voices that um, can speak the same language but can talk about it in a way that actually looks out for what the scripture calls the least of these, right? Um, I will say I'm very careful. So even when I, I told the story um, that comes from the Bible around the, the pool of Bethsaida, you know, I talk about it coming from an ancient text, an ancient tradition that many people will know. Um, I don't necessarily call it right. Like sometimes I talk about this great leader, um, you know, whose name is Jesus, but I sure as hell don't call him Christ in the well because there's no place for that, right? Like um, I try to put Jesus in in our ancient texts in a historical context, um, much less in a, in a church context, because that, that's how I personally kind of separate church from state in that space. Um, but I will say it's a dance, and I probably don't always get it right. Um, but for me, the most clear place where I bring my religion, my theology, my understanding of who God is, it's in the conversations over coffee or something stronger outside of the well, way off the floor, um, you know, that's where I get to have the conversation and, and say to, to a Senator Goodman, well, isn't the like foundational belief of a Christian is that we will care for our neighbor? Mm -hmm. And didn't Jesus describe the neighbor as the stranger, right? That conversation happened not on the well, not, not on the floor, but happened, you know, far, far away, but that conversation hopefully will influence, therefore, what happens on the floor when we get back there. So, thank you. 
morning. Good morning. How will people of color and people of not of color rise up to prevent the power of voter suppression succeeding? Yeah. Thank you, Neil, for that question. So yeah. I'm actually very, very optimistic about the state of um, of people of color and of people of goodwill um, in, in our state when it comes to fighting and resisting voter suppression. Here, here's the thing, um, we passed a voter suppression bill that lit a fire. Well, let's actually, let's be honest. There was already a fire lit underneath Georgia voters, right? I mean, we had unprecedented turnout in our elections because there was already a fire lit. And so now that voter suppression bill has only stoked those flames even more. And, you know, I'm excited to see, I mean, people have already bought and purchased um, portable printers so that they can go to people's houses and print out copies of their IDs and their organizations that are working to make sure that people who've been purged know they've been purged and can get back on. Um, you know, we passed... At the same time that we passed a bill to suppress people's voting rights, we also passed a bill that will help release 50,000 people from the list of felons. Mm -hmm. um, they'll get off of probation, which therefore makes them eligible to vote. Mm -hmm. And so you've got organizations that are working to make sure that those folks do get off probation and get registered to vote um, at the same time, right? So I think there's a lot of momentum, a lot of movement. I'm not concerned because I've watched so many people come together in response to these voter suppression bills. And so I think that we have a lot of momentum moving our way to make sure anybody who wants to vote, who's eligible to vote, I believe that come November 22, they will be able to vote. That there are enough organizations, there are enough people, people like you all, some of you are sitting in this room right now, who will make sure that if someone wants to vote, they will vote. And then there are other people who will make sure that after they vote, that that vote actually counts. I, I think we're in a really good place. Thank you. Yeah. I have to fight it out. Come on, Ray. Hi, Kim. Thank Hi. you for being here. Um, so uh, along those same lines regarding protecting our democracy, would you just talk a little bit about redistricting sure. and what you know, what really lies ahead and how do we overcome the gerrymandering and what impact is it gonna have? So. Sure. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So um, redistricting, we will go into session on November 3rd um, to talk about that. There's already been one map that's been released from the Senate side. Um, I suspect that we probably won't see the other maps um, until much closer to the third, probably like the first of November, <laughs> if history uh, repeats wow. itself. Wow. Um, so we won't have a lot of, of leadway. Um, we cannot defeat the gerrymander this year. That's just, we can't. The maps will be gerrymandered. Uh, there's, there are laws that allow for that. We have a Supreme Court that has allowed for that. So we're not gonna defeat the gerrymander this year. Let's just be clear about that. But what we can do, I think, is that we can help make it less bad. Um, and so some of the ways that we can do that is by making sure that we continue to show up to those public hearings. Um, there will be public hearings during the special session. Um, there's a really great um, kind of uh, lay-led, I don't know what the, what's the equivalent when you're not lay, uh, like, 
citizen-led um, citizen um, organization called FAIR Districts um, that's been working really hard to um, write all kinds of articles and, and newspapers all across the state around um, what redistricting should look like. Public pressure is our greatest, um, our greatest resource right now. And um, public shaming is also one of our greatest resources right now when it comes to fighting the gerrymander. I think the biggest thing that we can hope for is that um, communities of color are not bifurcated, that um, communities of color are not split so that their um, vote, votes are, are diluted. And uh, that is the place where we actually do have some Supreme Court backing to help us. And so making sure we continue to name that aloud and say, you know, you cannot break the black vote, you cannot split us up, it's going to be really important. And then my, my personal thing that I want to name is that um, people are paying a lot of attention, I feel like, to redistricting on the con congressional level, right? And, and maybe even for your state and, and your state senators and representatives. But don't forget about the local redistricting. How we draw the lines for our city councils, for our county councils, for our school districts, those things really matter. And we need just as many voices to be speaking up about that. Let me give you a small example. Baker County and in, in down in South Georgia, Baker County has something like a 50% or so black population. And instead of having districts, and of course, I mean, like Baker County, like everywhere in the South, black people live in a certain part of the town, of the, of the county, and white people live in a certain county. So instead of having districts that would enable black voters to vote for the voter of their choice, Baker County is just all one big district, which essentially therefore dilutes the black vote on a local level and prevents them from having representation in their county council. If they were to create three, dis three disparate districts, they'd have three county council members, then there would actually be a black representative um, for Baker County. But because we're not paying attention to local redistricting, things like that happen. So I want to just pin that for you all. Please pay attention to local redistricting. If you are frustrated about how Cross Keys High School, how the district lines for that are drawn, do y'all know about this? Like it's a long snake. Who gets to go to Cross Keys versus who gets to go to some of the better high schools? If you are frustrated about that, if you don't know about that, okay, I need you to go look it up because this is a really big issue here in our city. But then if you are frustrated by it, it's because we are not paying attention to how we draw those lines. Um, and so you need to begin to talk to your legislators because we have power over that as well um, to make sure we intervene and make sure our local district boundaries are drawn well as well. Yeah. Marty. How can we help you do your job yeah. by being Christians that are active? Yeah, thank you, Marty. I think that's a great question. So um, I think this is less me specifically, but more broadly. If we want to change the narrative of what it means to be a Christian who's engaged politically, then we've got to be clear that when we are engaging, engaging politically, we are doing so as people of faith. Mm and as Christians explicitly. So for so long, the people who have been clear about being Christians have been the Southern Baptists, they've been people of a particular leaning, political leaning, that I actually do not believe is consistent always with mm. the Christian tradition. Mm. And those of us Episcopalians, I feel like we are some of the worst at this. Mm. You know, sometimes we will be proud Episcopalians, but very rarely will we talk about being proud Christians. Mm. 
And, and you might go and talk to your legislator, and, and I get y'all's letters, but very rarely do I, do I get a letter from a proud Episcopalian who says, you know, I'm writing out of my Christian beliefs. Hmm. And so my fellow legislators, I mean, I have, a, I have a, a legislator who voted the wrong way according to the Southern Baptist Church, and he heard all about it because he said, oh, my goodness, Christians don't think we should do this. Hmm. Well, there are at least, I don't know, 50 Christians sitting in this room who hmm. did think he should have voted that way. Hmm. But because we're not necessarily naming ourselves as that, right? I get emails every day from people who talk about, I am, you know, from this part of the county, and I do this kind of work, and I speak as a Jewish person, or I speak as a Christian person, I mean, you know, as a Christian person. And oftentimes, um, you know, they speak on behalf of these religious language, religions in ways that I don't necessarily agree with, but at least they told me who they were. They told me their perspective. And so I want to encourage you all to be bold mm. and to name who you are, who you are, what, what philosophies, what traditions, what religions are inspiring your moral compass that inspired you there to write, not just, not just your representatives who live and work in this area, but who live and represent broader Georgia, because they need to hear from progressive Christians to know that there is a way of following Christ that allows them to expand Medicaid. Hmm. Hmm. There's a way of following Christ that allows them to fund our public schools fully without ciphering money to private schools via vouchers. They need to know that you can be a progressive Christian who believes in criminal justice reform, who understands that you can put someone in jail for a finite amount of time and not forever. Mm -hmm. They need to know that is a way to be a Christian because for so long, the way to be a Christian has been defined in a really different way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll just, let, me, let me ask the last question and then, and then we got to, I think we have to go. I have to go. Maybe they don't have to go. Um, <laughs> So um, Elizabeth Shouse Caffey pointed out, I hadn't thought about this, that there hasn't been a pride march in this city for a couple of years. It's been two years now. Um, it's, you know, COVID has meant that in many ways we live privately and things that we've sort of taken for granted or even maybe didn't like, but that or weren't, weren't about us, but were happening, that are markers of who we are as a community. Um, haven't, you know, they're not visible, they're not happening. We can't take them for granted. Do you think there's been impact, or there's been impact on the larger LGBTQ plus community mm -hmm. of COVID and of the lack of those kinds of public gatherings? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Elizabeth kind of pitched it to me earlier to give me some, yeah. some advanced warning on it. Um, a, a couple of things. I um, served as a college chaplain for five years um, at Morehouse Spelman in Clark, Atlanta. And every year I would take a group of kids, uh, students, young people, to the Pride Parade. And every year I would watch those students weep mm. as they realized that there were thousands, right? There are hundreds of thousands of people mm. who loved them, mm. who accepted them as black queer people, who were excited that they were in the parade and would cheer for them. Mm. And, and so I, I think about young people today who, for the last two years, who've come out, perhaps, and they've been in a household where um, that hasn't been received well, or where they just feel in isolation, and how they haven't had that experience, that huge pouring of affirmation. And so I, I wonder about them. I, I have some concerns about their own mental health, um, because there is a challenge there. Um, I, I also think that not having pride... So. Um, I had a conversation, so I'm, uh, this week I've been wearing my rainbow watch. 
And I was out uh, at Common Ground doing what we do, and a gentleman said to me, he's like, Kim, I like your watch. And I was like, oh, thank you. And we kept going the conversation. He was like, no, I really like your watch. Oh, sweetie. And I was like, oh, this is his way of coming out to me. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> and ordinarily, if we'd had a parade, he's like, you know, he would have had another avenue. Right. Um, you know, he probably would have come to the parade with us, or right? Like, there just would have been other ways of expressing it. Um, but, but what happened, once I figured out that he was coming out to me, like, it clicked in. You know, we were able to have a really great conversation about access to housing that's available to people who are living with HIV and AIDS. We were able to have conversations about PrEP and getting, um, how do you get PrEP and things like that to make sure he stays well. Like, it was a, just a whole expanded conversation that yeah. we were able to have. And if I hadn't had, you know, this little watch on, yeah. I don't know we would have had it. Yeah. Whereas I know when we have the parade, it's just so present that it's a lot easier for people to come out. It's a lot easier for people to start asking questions about resources and things like that. Yeah. So I do, I do miss that. I lament that. And I, I hope that uh, next year I won't be in here, but we'll be we'll out be there. Out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll look forward to seeing you out there next year with us. We all um, thank Kim Jackson, please. Thank you.